Welcome to the Essence of Health Tea Time Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Shayla Toons-Withers. As a double board certified family and obesity medicine physician with over 12 years of experience in medicine, I teach motivated individuals how to achieve their desired quality of life while preventing and reversing chronic diseases. It's tea time. What part of your health journey is most challenging? Is it the actual effort of sticking to a plan? The cooking and the meal planning? The exercise routine? Not enough time for everything you think you need to do? Or the confusion of it all? If you said yes to any of these obstacles, then keep listening to learn how you can smash these problems just by checking your email. You check your email inbox every day already, but what if checking your inbox brought you better health instead of the stress it sometimes can bring? Well, I have news for you. You can improve your health, get a jump start on improving your health conditions, and start to feel like a better version of you just by checking your email inbox over the next five days when you join the free Nourish and Flourish five-day challenge. You'll get health tips, actionable videos, a goal and habit tracker, and healthy recipes every day for five days. Better health is the best investment you'll ever make, and this is only a small investment of your time. You have nothing to lose but everything to gain. The Nourish and Flourish 5-Day Challenge was designed to set the foundation for healthy habits for life. Say yes to yourself today and sign up now at drshayla.com forward slash NF challenge. I'll also place these details in the show notes. The essence of health is in you. See you in your inbox. On this episode of the Essence of Health Tea Time podcast, I would like to issue a trigger warning. This particular episode does discuss topics that may not be suitable for a younger audience and is recommended for an adult audience, including things regarding sexual health and trauma related. Thank you so much for listening. On today's episode of the Essence of Health Tea Time podcast, I have a special guest, Dr. Sadaf Lodi. Dr. Lodi is a board-certified OBGYN and executive coach for women based in New York. She has a doctorate in osteopathic medicine from Michigan State University and completed residency training in obstetrics and gynecology. She has earned a certification as a life and executive coach from Rutgers University and is a sex counselor and educator. Her mission has always been to empower and educate women as a women's health doctor, and most recently, she has opened up a telehealth practice serving patients in New York and Michigan for sexual and menopausal health. She has a passion for helping women remove mental and physical barriers so that they can find pleasure in their relationship and believes that all women, regardless of their backgrounds, have the potential to live life to its fullest. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Lodi. I am so excited to have you here and to discuss this topic today. Thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Withers. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So tell me, how does intimacy even impact our physical and mental well-being? Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, you know, humans are social beings and we 
really want the connection and the closeness that we have with within our relationships, whether it be in our family or our friends or anything like that, we really strive to have a connection. And having loved ones and a community where we can count on and that helps us make, you know, it makes us feel supported and loved often gives us the feeling of purpose. And to basically knowing that we have somebody else's love and support helps us make, makes us feel understood and makes us feel like we matter. And uh, it's really important. It also, you know, I know that we talk a lot about physical well-being and we talk about prevention of burnout, but, you know, having that intimacy within our relationships helps with stress reduction. It also helps with improved immune function, longer lifespan and pain management. Ah, yeah. And those are all important details that you just mentioned. And I like that you mentioned community. What we know, even as professional, you know, women physicians, what we've seen over the past several years is us having our own groups of community, even online social groups. And we found that that's helpful because, you know, there are other people who have know what your experience may be and who you can, you know, vent to in that safe space for people who may understand and, and that intimacy, even within that setting, does really help improve your well-being. Absolutely, absolutely. And we also know that, you know, what you just mentioned on, you know, our mental well-being, feeling supported also gives us that emotional support. It helps with our self-esteem. It gives us, like we talked about, a sense of belonging with those online Facebook groups, like you mentioned. And it actually increases our happiness and satisfaction. We know that, you know, when we feel lonely, it can be very isolating. And uh, we saw just recently, I'm not sure if you saw, but uh, we saw that a woman a physician actually in New York committed suicide uh, postpartum. She had postpartum depression and it was a murder-suicide. She killed her four and a half month old baby and herself. So we know the horrible effects of loneliness and isolation. So it really is important to have those communities and have that connection so we have that sense of belonging and to make us feel like we matter and what we're doing matters. Yeah, that is so true. And, and I am familiar with that case. And that, that was, that was really sad and something that we've come through this pandemic and we saw how much mental health was a challenge. And a large part of that, you know, when you look at the studies that have come out of that, were that a lot of us lost that sense of community. You know, we weren't able to go to brunch with our friends. We weren't able to go visit people. You know, we were all stuck in our individual homes. And then for many of us, especially in healthcare for a while, we were even isolated from our families, even within the home, because we didn't know how this thing was spreading. And so, yeah, it does really speak to that that need for intimate relationships for our, our mental health. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember, you know, I'm an OBGYN and I remember coming home and I had a routine with during COVID where I would, as soon as I would come home, I would, you know, change all my clothes, put on my robe, go and take a shower real quick before I even, you know, spoke to anyone, touched right. anyone. You know, we had this um, UV light that like irradiated all the viruses on my phone. I was, it's crazy, right? It was really yeah. Yeah, same. And I, you know, as a mom, I even remember one of my kids saying, well, we can't hug you anymore when you come through the door. And, you know, that really broke my heart. I was like, you can hug me after I do these 15 things, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so now, you know, we live in a society that often prioritizes physical health and our physical appearance, but why do you feel that emotional, relational, and sexual intimacy is frequently overlooked in discussions about health and wellness? Yeah, you know, and I think that is a fantastic question. I think that uh, emotional, relational, and sexual intimacy are overlooked because you know, physical health and appearance are easy to see, right? Easy to see, easy to define. And we get these images all day long through the media, through social media, through our TV, through movies, right? All these expectations of what we're supposed to look like, what we're supposed to act like, what we're supposed to be. And so it's so much easier to focus on the physical and the visible aspects of our relationship or even of ourselves, right? And so now also we have cultural norms and expectations that place a greater emphasis on visible indicators of success. And that, you know, can translate into what a person looks like, what they're wearing, what type of clothes they're wearing. And so in the age of social media, we also have that instant gratification where we know there's more of a pressure to have the look of health, even if a person doesn't, you know, like, for example, we don't know what's going on in a person's head, like we know with mental health, right? But we see them on the outside and we're like, oh, wow, they look like that, you know, they have it they all, have it all successful, right? They have it all put together. They look fantastic, you know, where they may be really struggling on the inside, uh, for some people, there may be a cultural stigma or taboo of discussing emotional, relational, and sexual health topics. We know that. We see that all the time. I know that in different cultures, you know, a lot of times there's a sex negativity where sex is seen as, you know, wrong, shameful, embarrassing. And so those are private matters and really never discussed. And if you don't have somebody that has the training or that feels comfortable discussing sexual health topics, You'll never have that discussion at home. And then this can lead to a lot of discomfort and avoidance of conversations that we know are super important for our own health. Um, of course, we know there's also lack of awareness and education. You know, I don't know about your medical school education, but I know with my medical school education, and I love my alma mater, you know, Michigan State is a fantastic school, but you know, we didn't get trained at all. I mean, in, in medical school, we got maybe two, three hours of sexual health, if even that, you know, I don't even remember any more than that. And I'm an OBGYN. And even in my residency program, I can tell you, we didn't learn anything about sexual health, nothing, nothing about menopause, nothing at all. And mind blowing, right? You know? Even for an OBGYN. And then I can tell you as recently as 2021, I was part of an academic hospital and part of training their residents and their medical students. Again, nothing on postpartum depression, nothing on the fourth trimester, nothing on sexual health, nothing on menopause. So, you know, really, where do physicians, where do practitioners get this information from? I mean, you really have to seek it out right? If yeah. you want to know, if you want to feel comfortable about it, um, I think that you have to really go and have and do conduct your own training because mm -hmm. really we're not getting it. At least I didn't get it from my medical school and I didn't get it from my residency. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I never even thought about that until you, you just said that. But for sure, in medical school, you know, we were taught more of the, the embryology side of it, you know, fetal development, that kind of thing, but definitely not a sexual health perspective. And, you know, even I'm family medicine trained and, you know, we, like you said, very little about menopause. And, you know, we did because family medicine, we do delve over into mental health. So we would talk about postpartum depression and learn about that, but still no true. Uh, sexual health learning. Huh. Was, yeah, that was done in training. And then, you know, too, in, in society, we, you know, have for so long lived in this world where it was like the good girl, bad boy kind of teaching to where, you know, you women don't talk about sex and sexual health. Um, guys, it's okay for them to, but not for women to. And, and I think that structured to a, a lot of the way that we feel about having these discussions too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just what you're saying, right? Like the media is so powerful when it comes to shaping our own cultural norms and our values. And like what you're just talking about, you know, like the bad boy and the good girl and girls don't talk about sex. And and if they do, then there's something wrong with them. And why are they so hypersexual? And why is this? Why is that? Right. And so we have all these you know, things that we set up when we talk about what a good woman should do and how she should present herself and what she talks about, what she doesn't talk about. And then I think that leads to a lot of shame and embarrassment. And, you know, the idea that like having a conversation about sexual health is wrong, right? And I find that a lot of patients even find it very difficult to talk to their practitioners about sexual health. And then when they talk to their practitioners, if they're you know, practitioner, the physician has not been trained in sexual health, then that physician is going to shy away from that discussion and, you know, perhaps say like, oh, well, let me refer you to somebody that knows, or maybe they just won't even have that discussion and they won't even, you know, broach the topic. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And that becomes so unfortunate, you know, the patient to have that missed opportunity. I think back to I recently, just last year, did an additional training program in HIV care and primary within primary care. And one of the parts of the curriculum was actually on taking a sexual health history. And so when I saw it, I was like, I know how to take a history. You know, as a family doctor, one thing I know how to do is take a history. (laughs) But even I was astounded as to how much I had been missing in taking that thorough side of the sexual and social history for my patients because there are just so many things that we don't tend to touch on within our our history taken and within discussion with our patients. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's there's so many different things and different, I would say, like even nuances in the way that you ask questions, right, so that you can get more of an answer from patients. You know, sometimes when we ask patients questions, they just say yes or no. But then there's a technique in asking those questions so that you get more of a fuller picture, a better understanding of what their sexual health looks like and what types of activities they're participating in and what they're not participating in and what their desires and what their wants are and what is it that they really want from their relationship, right? Unfortunately, I think that in medicine, we just are not given that time, right? It's really the luxury of time. It's There's a trade-off between seeing a certain number of patients a day and also having that time with a patient. I know that when I'm in the clinic, I have at most 15 minutes 
be in between patients. And so when a patient starts saying, well, I have, you know, this, and then, oh, by the way, also this, and then you're just like, oh my God, I can't deal, you know, there's too many questions. I just don't have that much time. So it's really unfortunate. I think that you almost have to go to a concierge doctor to really get all your questions answered. Yeah, yeah, you really do. And, you know, and that's one of the, the many problems with our, our current healthcare setup um, that we face. But yeah, you're so right. Time is definitely, you know, playing a part within that. And now going back to some of what you mentioned about those cultural and societal factors that, you know, influence people's perceptions of intimacy, how can someone navigate, especially those cultural influences, so that they can begin to cultivate a more healthy and personalized approach to intimacy and wellness? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think what happens is that a lot of times we we grow up the way that we grow up, right? So we grow up in a certain community and we think that whatever, you know, as we're getting older, I think unless we're really taking time to self-reflect, I think that we just grow up thinking that this is the way it is, right? So I think that what I would tell somebody to do first is just see if the way that they are thinking of that thinking is really serving them, right? So for example, if there is a patient that comes to me and she's experiencing vaginismus. And as you know, vaginismus is basically the tightening of the muscles around the vagina that causes it very, um, makes it very difficult for a woman to have any type of penetration, whether it's a, you know, pelvic exam, it could be a tampon insertion, it could be penile vaginal intercourse, any type of insertion into the vagina, um, those muscles will tighten up and a patient will not be able to have any type of penetration. And so I think that, you know, part of when we deal with, when I see a patient like that, part of it is anatomical, right? You have to really get those muscles to try to relax um, so that they don't experience pain with penetration. And so, you know, what really helps is to work with a pelvic floor therapist, but also what helps is to work with her thoughts, right? Because it's the anticipation of pain. It's the fear of pain that causes those muscles to contract. So, you know, when we start talking to patients that have that, you know, a lot of times I'll ask them about, you know, their thoughts about sex, right? And where do they get those thoughts? And if it's, you know, if, if it's all negative, if it's wrong, if it's shameful, embarrassing, you know, they feel guilty about it, or the, perhaps they experience some type of abuse, right, or trauma, um, a lot of times you have to work through the mental aspect of it as well. So when you're talking about how do you develop that self-awareness and change your cultural views or, you know, the, the way that you were raised, it really takes time to develop that self-awareness, that open-mindedness, and a willingness to actually even question and evaluate the social norms that you were raised in, right, instead of just accepting them. So, you know, one of the ways that I would do it is engage in self-reflection, right? Take time to just reflect on your personal values, your beliefs, and your desires, and see if the way that you were brought up, if that's serving you, if that's influencing your own views, right? And then educate yourself. I would say that, you know, you can try socializing with people that are with different, you know, from different backgrounds, from different cultural backgrounds, so that you seek out information and resources from a different perspective and know that it's not just one way of seeing things, right? So people that grow up in like a negative 
culture or perhaps a way that they were brought up, you know, they, I would really ask them to just sit down and think about, you know, if that point of view is serving them, because if it's not, then how could they change that point of view to something that is more sex positive or something that's more affirming to them, right? And to really, it's really about giving yourself permission to change your point of view, and to see that there are different ways of looking at things. Um, I would also question assumptions and stereotypes of what's normal or ideal, right? So while we have our current societal norms and expectations about gender roles, relationship dynamics, and other aspects of intimacy, they may or may not be correct. So maybe, you know, question those and see what it is that you want and understand that there is, of course, you know, definitely no one size fits all in all relationships. You always want to make sure that you engage in some type of open and honest communication, especially if you're in a partnership, uh, in a marriage, and then make it a habit to have these open and respectful and honest conversations. I think one of the biggest problems is, is that people, and, you know, myself included, not just, you know, other individuals or patients stuff, is to have those open, honest discussions with your partners and or partner and let them know what it is that you really want, what is it that you like and what you don't like, and to make sure that you establish clear boundaries, you know, be confident and clear in defining what it is that you're comfortable with and what it is that you're not. And then be serious about consent, right? We always have to make sure that in whatever activity we're engaging in, that there's consent from both parties and that we understand that and that we should prioritize each other's personal needs and preferences and comfort. Yeah, those are great tips. Um, you know, one thing I, I love about what you said is about looking even beyond your own culture and exploring other cultures and hearing other differences of opinions and thoughts and concepts. I think that's profound for a number of things that can help yeah. our society move forward. You know, if we if we all kind of took a look at at different aspects of each other's culture and and how you know things can be seen differently and and taken and developed for, for some something more positive. So. Absolutely. I knew that, you know, there was a time when I actually did not know, for example, so I'm Muslim, and I didn't know that Islam is a very sex positive religion. I had no idea. I thought that the way that I was raised, you know, which was very conservative, and, you know, I just thought that that's just the way it was. You know, we didn't talk about these things, you know, private, talking about sexual health was very private, taboo, you didn't talk about that. And then when I learned that Islam itself is very sex positive, and that, you know, we are encouraged to ask uh, somebody that's knowledgeable about sexual health and to go ahead and explore and learn on our own accord. And that really gave me the permission for me to seek out more information about sexual health because I felt like it was, I learned that it was really me that was holding myself back, thinking that this is the way things are. And when I realized that that's not what my, you know, religion and says, then I gave myself that permission to seek out more knowledge. So that was really important. So just going back to what you said, you know, is to looking at things from a different perspective and really giving yourself permission to seek out other views and see whether or not the way that you believe really serves you or not. 
Yeah, yeah, that's important to, you know, that that self-exploration, because we do, lots of us, you know, from different backgrounds, we do grow up with these, you know, even cultural and religious perceptions of, of what things should look like if you, you know, I'm Christian, but if you go to this type of Christian church versus that type of church, you might even hear or develop even a different type of understanding about sexuality. Wow. And so it is, it's so important that you do that self-reflection and that self-seeking like you mentioned, to develop what's going to be important for you and for your your health uh, surrounding that intimacy. So thanks for sharing those. If you're frustrated with your weight, taking more medications than you'd like to, have been told that you are at risk for the development of a chronic preventable disease, or just are not feeling in the best of health, then I'm talking to you. Why? Because you're tired of fat dieting, you know it's time for a change, and you want a sustainable plan to improve your health. If you have found yourself at this place in life, well, I have developed a program that's just for you. It's called The Essence of Health, and it's your prescription for transformation. My goal with this program is to give you the tools needed to create sustainable lifestyle changes within a group coaching setting, along with one-to-one individualized coaching to give you a personalized path to health that's just for you. The benefits are priceless, so join today. Head on over to eohcoaching.com to learn more. The essence of health is in you. And now what are, you mentioned vaginismus, what are some of those other common concerns that you encounter that women typically have with achieving pleasure and intimacy? Absolutely. So I would really say that the number one thing that women come to me for is the lack of desire, you know, decreased libido. I would probably say that that really is the number one concern that women have. Now, we know that if you have always had low libido or really have no desire in in sex, then that's okay, you know, in physical intimacy. There is nothing wrong with that. And that is something that, you know, perhaps is somebody's value and, you know, it's important to honor that. But for women that have had, say, like a higher libido and now it's a lower libido and they're wanting change, um, I think that that really is the number one issue that women come to me for. And it could be due to, you know, hormonal changes. It could be due to stress. It could be due to relationship issues. It could be due to psychological factors. Uh, Another issue that women come to me for is pain with intercourse. And that is another big one. And of course, that goes back to, again, you know, what's happening with the individual and what phase of life are they in, you know, with with women, as you know, you know, we go through so many different things, right? We, we go through puberty and then, you know, there's adolescence and then there's, you know, our fertility years and then we have a baby and then we're postpartum and then we're having pain with sex at that time because we're breastfeeding. And then we go through menopause and then there's pain within a course there because of vaginal dryness and all this stuff, right? So really important to assess what's going on in our lives at that time to figure out the root cause of the pain with intercourse. Uh, women also come because they're having difficulty orgasming. You know, they're, they used to be able to orgasm easier when they were younger, and now they're finding it hard harder to orgasm. And again, that could be due to a lot of things. One of the most common things is that, um, well, you could have clitoral phimosis. We know that uh, most women tend do not orgasm with penile vaginal intercourse. Most women will orgasm with stimulation of the clitoris. And so 
if there is clitoral phimosis where the, there's tissue around the clitoris, then that can mute the orgasm or it can cause anorgasmia. Basically, a woman is not able to orgasm. So that's important to assess. Or it can also be that there is decreased blood supply to the genitals. And we know that that happens as we get older through menopause and the decrease in estrogen. And our nerves tend to need more stimulation, right? So we used to think that there were over 8,000 nerve endings in the clitoris. And now, due to recent research that was released earlier in this uh, year by one of, the, one of the physicians, Dr. Maria Oloko, and she and another surgeon had done research and they found out that the clitoris actually has more than 10,000 nerve endings. Oh, wow. And so because of that, you know, it's really important to see that as we get older, um, those nerves, they need more blood supply and that blood supply may decrease because of the estrogen. And so the one way to increase that would be to use vaginal estrogen as we get older. And basically what vaginal estrogen does is it helps to support the epithelium of the vagina and it prevents it from atrophying, which can really cause a big problem in somebody's um, sex life, really. And uh, estrogen, we know, helps with lubrication. It helps with the epithelium. We know it prevents recurrent UTIs because we know that with vaginal atrophy, the anatomy of the vagina changes. And so the urethra will get bigger and it, you'll have recurrent UTIs. So it helps with bladder health. So really vaginal estrogen is so important as we get older and especially as we go through perimenopause and menopause because we know that we also have decreased lubrication as we get older. And so uh, vaginal estrogen can help with all of those things. And that's why I'm a huge proponent of that. Um, as we get older, we also, you know, tend to, we can have negative body image, right? So our body changes, you know, perhaps when we were younger, we had a more fit body or, you know, it was easier to lose weight. And we know that as we get older, it gets harder to lose weight. And so our body image changes, you know, we have kids, our body changes, we have like this flab <laughs> in the lower part of, of our abdomen that just will not go away. And so, you know, all of those things can lead to a negative body image. Um, of course, you know, cultural and religious um, challenges that we may have or, you know, influences that may affect how we see sex, sex and sexual health. There could be past trauma, abuse, um, stress and fatigue, medications. You know, oftentimes we don't talk about medications. And I think that's really right. an area that physicians tend to forget, right? We prescribe meds, you know, we're prescribing antidepressants, but do we know that sometimes that can affect a person, you know, a man ejaculating, right? And so we, do we also talk about like how antidepressants can decrease your libido, right? Sometimes calcium channel blockers can decrease libido and decrease desire. Uh, we can have, you know, sometimes diabetic meds can affect that, you know, so a lot of meds can affect desire and libido and oftentimes we don't discuss it with patients because sometimes maybe we don't even know that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, really important for us to let our patients know that different medications can affect it. And of course, relationship issues, right? We know that sometimes perhaps the type of person we wanted when we were younger is not the same type of person that we need now as we get older. And so then there's a lot of conflict and that's where the open communication comes in. And really it's so important to have that open communication. There is, um, there was a study that was done on, uh, it was called the Female Sexual Satisfaction Survey. And what they noted that the number one uh, reason for female sexual satisfaction was communication. 
And that is what resulted in the most amount of satisfaction amongst those women. Um, yeah. so and that's, you know, amazing that you, you t- that's not surprising, you know, being a woman, but I wonder how many, you know, partners and, and spouses out there that, you know, have even missed that side of, of the importance of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it just sounds so simple, but really mm-hmm. having those, you know, deep conversations are really tough, right? <laughs> like, it's tough to tell somebody, you know, your partner or whatever, like, I don't like, or, you know, or, or, but, but the way to start really have that conversation is to start out with what you do like, right? Mm-hmm. You never want to start criticizing somebody and especially not in the bedroom. Right. <laughs> right. Not really. Yeah. Yeah, then you get back to that whole body negativity and all those other things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So really important to have those difficult conversations definitely out of the bedroom and to have it when, you know, both you and your partner have time and when you're really not stressed and when you're not thinking about like, 50 other things, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you touched on some really great things, which also speaks to the importance of, you know, why someone should just take that time and really book an appointment just to talk to your doctor about your sexual health and your your experience and what you like to experience, because there are so many factors that you, you know, just pointed out to us that can definitely be playing a part. Now, what are some ways or even some things that women can begin to incorporate into their personal health plan to have more pleasure with intimacy? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I think one of the one of the most important things that I would say is really engaging in like self-exploration to know what feels pleasurable to you, self-touch, getting familiar with your own erogenous zone so that you can then communicate that to your own partner. I think that that is really, really important. Of course, like we talked about earlier, you know, having that open and honest communication with your partner to dis- discuss your desires, your preferences, your boundaries, or any concerns that you have. Um, practicing mindfulness. So, so many studies have been done on mindfulness and how that impacts, you know, your sexual health, but really in regard to increasing desire and arousal. So they noted that when um, health, the practitioners or really the people in those studies, when they practice mindfulness, it actually increased uh, arousal and libido. And the reason why I did it is because, you know, when we talk about mindfulness, I know that's like a huge buzzword, but when we practice mindfulness, we are really practicing being in ourselves, right? In the moment without judgment. And it's really just experiencing all of like the sensation and really, I mean, I would love for, you know, anyone that's listening uh, to this or watching the audio, is really to like, you know, just close your eyes and to put your hands on your other hand and just with your fingertips, right? And just really feel that sensation, really feel the the touch, you know, the fingers, the ridges of your fingers, you know, on your other hand and really experience it and see how that feels. And so when we do that, when we practice mindfulness and specifically when it comes to the bedroom, you can really enhance your own experience by you know, feeling the touch, sensing, you know, what does, what does that um, touch feel like? What does that kiss taste like? What is, you know, like all using all of your senses and really being in yourself, embodying those, you know, senses and really realizing 
what each thing feels like, what each sense feels like, right? Like when you're looking at something, what does it look like? Really look at it. When you taste something, what does it taste like? When you smell something, what does it really smell? So you're practicing that mindfulness. And when you do that, it automatically will increase your mindful. It'll increase your libido. It'll increase your desire and it'll increase your arousal because really what you're doing is you're tuning out everything else, all of that extra noise, right? And even like when we're in the bedroom with our significant other, we're always thinking about so many things, right? We're thinking, maybe we're thinking about the dishes in the sink. We're thinking about, you know, the laundry that hasn't been done, putting away the, the, you know, the clothes, you know, making the kids lunches, whatever. You're not really in the moment, right? So then you're probably not going to enjoy the sexual experience or the physical intimacy that you're going to have with your partner. So really kind of, you know, tuning those things out and really tuning into your own body is really going to increase your own arousal and your libido. So that's how that mindfulness and relaxation technique works. Yeah. I met a, um, a burlesque dancer actually it was her profession and she uses techniques of burlesque along with mindfulness to teach women how to more so discover their own personal levels of intimacy and as techniques for calming and grounding yourself. And it was just as you mentioned, a lot of it is, you know, soft touch and exploring those different areas on your body within yourself that do help to calm and to ground you and to put your wow. thoughts more into that positive space. And, and just hearing her speak and, you know, especially hearing you mention it too, a lot of the techniques were very similar. Um, this is even, you know, things she's brought in from, from her career as a, as a burlesque uh, dancer. And so, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that is really important. And then, you know, you can definitely uh, try pelvic floor exercises to improve your pelvic muscle strength and control, you know, use sexual health, Wellness products, you know, I think lubricants are fantastic. I think that every person should use a lubricant and you really don't need a reason to use it. I mean, I think that, you know, lubricants are meant to decrease friction. And so anything that's going to decrease friction is going to uh, basically make the experience more pleasurable, right? And so... You don't test out different to, ones, I will say, you know, I, I yeah. commonly hear patients will mention, well, you know, that didn't seem to work, but, you know, test out different ones because they yes. are different. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I think there, you know, there's the oil-based, there's the water-based, water-based one dries out very quickly, oil-based is okay. I think that the one that I prefer and like the most, I think, are the silicone based lubricants because they just are very silky and they just glide and that you know and they last a long time as well and so I think that for patients or you know individuals that are looking for a lubricant you know maybe try out a silicone one but remember don't use a silicone uh, lubricant with a silicone toy because that's going to ruin the integrity of that toy so you always want to use like say like an oil-based lubricant with a silicone toy. So if you use like vibrators or, you know, anything like that, massage oils can also enhance pleasure and intimacy. And, you know, if you're, if a patient is really struggling, I would say to seek out a sex therapist or a sex coach or somebody like that, that can really help you to work through your thoughts and work through anything that you may have that may be causing a roadblock in you experiencing pleasure and within your intimate relationships. Yeah, thank you. And now in the media, we always hear about all these things that men can use for a healthier intimate experience in terms of medications. What are some of these medications that are now available for women to have this intimate experience? 
Yeah. So the uh, the medications that are out right now are those to increase uh, libido. And so we know that women have um, sometimes can experience what we call hypoactive sexual desire disorder, HSDD. And uh, for that, of course, what you do, what practitioners will do, hopefully, is they'll take a thorough history and they'll go over the biopsychosocial um, model of what we do to when we assess somebody with, that comes in, say, with decreased libido, right? Bio is we're talking about anything anatomical that could be causing pain or causing that decreased libido. It could be the vaginal dryness. It could be vaginismus. It could be any of those things, um, those anatomical causes. Um, the psycho part of it could be, you know, is the patient experiencing depression? Are they experiencing anxiety? Are any of those things impacting desire and decreasing the libido? And then the social aspect is where we talk about, you know, perhaps the type of environment that they grew up in, you know, is it any type of trauma or abuse that they experience? Is it that they're a single mom trying to work like four jobs? You know, of course, they're not going to have increased libido if they're working so hard and stressed and worried about their kids and things like that, right? So all of those things being taken into account, and if all of that comes out negative and everything is fine, then, then we can give these medications out. So there are two medications currently on the market. One is called Ad. It's a daily medication that you take at night. I believe it's 100 milligrams, uh, if I'm not mistaken, but you take it at night. And both of these medications work differently. They work on the receptors in the brain to increase the libido. Um, and so one is called Addy or Philbenserin. Yeah. Um, which is the generic name. And then there is another medication called Vilesi, which is an auto injector, which basically you inject yourself uh, with this medication about a half hour before you anticipate having some type of sexual intercourse. And it, both of those medications are supposed to increase your libido and um, really help women out. Um, I think the last thing that I would say is that there is also hormone therapy. So hormone therapy also can help with decreased libido, right? And uh, for some women, they have low testosterone. So just giving a tenth. So I'm not telling women to get testosterone pellets at all because I don't trust those and I don't know the dosage that is in that pellet. And that's why those pellets are not FDA approved because we can't guarantee that you will be getting a certain amount of testosterone with each injection. Um, what I will say is that oftentimes um, practitioners can give testosterone to women to increase the libido. And what they do is they give a tenth of the dose of what they would give to a man, right? Because testosterone does increase libido, but it can have some side effects if taken in excess. So for women, it can make them, it can um, cause their voices to deepen. It can cause them to become, you know, have hirsutism. And it can also cause clitoromegaly, which is, you know, the clitoris becomes really enlarged and you know, when a patient has clitoromegaly, that's not reversible. So, you know, really important to know that if you are going to get testosterone to help with libido, that you get it from a practitioner that knows what they're doing and that understands the dosages and that understands, you know, what can happen if there's too much. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And, you know, it's, I feel like it's taken so long within the medical community for women to have any options, you know, oh, out yeah. there. Sure yeah, yeah. and as you know, we can see they're, they're still limited when you compare uh, to what's available for men, but yeah, but there are some. And now before you leave us, what are the three tips that you often share with your patients regarding their sexual health and overcoming those barriers to achieve pleasure? 
Yeah, so I'll give you more than three tips. All righty. <laughs> Um, you know, one of the biggest things and kind of what we talked a little bit about before was practicing mindfulness to increase pleasure and arousal. And again, I think that that really is one of the easiest things that someone can do. It's easy in the sense that you don't have to go and buy something, right? But it's hard because you have to practice it and you have to practice it a lot to just kind it of- It takes time. It's, yes. Yeah. Yes, it takes time, it takes a lot of practice, and it takes a lot of non-judgment, you know, just to kind of really just be in yourself and to really just focus on the different senses. And so I think that is really important. Um, embracing and accepting yourself and loving yourself as you are right now. I think that's one of the hardest things for people to do, right? Sometimes people will say like, well, you know, I'll love myself once I lose like 10 pounds, or I'll love myself once I get this new haircut, or once I, once this happens, once that happens. But, you know, really, it's just accepting yourself and loving yourself now, like right now, right? I just know because my, my father recently passed, and it is, it really shows you how limited time we have on this earth, right? So, so important to just whatever you can, you know, do it now. So don't wait to love yourself. Just accept yourself now and love yourself now. And recognize that love and intimacy will evolve as we age, right? It, it may not look like it looked when we were younger, but that's okay because that's normal. We, you know, things have to evolve. We, we evolve. If we're not evolving, then, you know, we're doing something wrong. We have to keep growing. And so it's also understanding and accepting and knowing that things will change as we get older, but accepting that as the new normal and that that's okay. Um, prioritizing communication. We know that that is super important. We know that that leads to sexual satisfaction and happiness with us and within our relationship and with our partner. So really prioritizing that and carving time out of your day to do that, right? I, I know it's tough. We all lead very busy lives, but you know, having that time, even if it's at, at the end of the day, even if it's for 10 minutes where you're not talking about the kids, right? So get that out of the way. You're not talking about kids. You're not talking about laundry. You're not talking about the house. You're just talking about your relationship and with each other about, you know, what you like, what they like, and how you can work together and to achieve both your pleasure and also whatever it is that you want. Um, and really make time for sex, make time for physical intimacy, right? Prioritize it, um, make a date night because life happens and life happens to everyone. And so I think that once you allow it to not be a priority, right? Once we don't prioritize anymore, it will never be a priority. And so if you want that physical intimacy, if you want that connection with your partner and it's important to you, then you really have to create time and make time for it because we all know that the only way we get something done is if we carve out that time and make time to make it happen. It's not just going to happen. You know, you can't wait for the other person. It's If it's important to you, then you have to take the first step and you have to initiate and you have to make that time happen. And, you know, it's not all about physical intimacy. We know that, right? There's so many different types of intimacy. There's emotional intimacy. There's relational intimacy. There's intellectual intimacy, right? So really just increasing intimacy through various activities, just even holding hands, right? That doesn't cost anything. That's not going to, you know, take up a lot of time. It's just holding hands, engaging in shared hobbies or participating in new experiences together that foster the closeness and deepen your emotional and physical connection.
Yeah, thank you. That, that was awesome. So I hope the audience, you know, I hope they pulled out their notepad and it took notes there because those were, yeah, really fantastic tips. Well, Dr. Lodi, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was uh, a really great discussion and I appreciate all of the the information that you um, have brought forth here. So how can my audience connect with you? I know that you're a podcast host too. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so my podcast is called the Muslim Sex Podcast, and it is all about relationships and intimacy, and um, you don't need to be Muslim to listen. It's just kind of like, you know, most people don't think of Muslims and sex in the same context, right? So it's kind of like, a, oh, wow, what is that, you know? So it's not just for Muslims, but really it's just a podcast about relationships and how to increase intimacy within a relationship, and we talk about, you know, eating disorders, talk about anxiety in relationships talk about I have I had a sex therapist on and we talked about kink 101 so there's different topics um I had on a, a physician that talked about the clitoris and clitorophimosis and things like that so really interesting topics I also am on um, Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN. I have a website called drsadaf.com uh, on Facebook I'm at Dr. Sadaf Girl Talk and anyone can email me at drsadaf, S-A-D-A-F, at drsadaf.com. Awesome, awesome. And I'll be sure to put all of that in the show notes so that you can find Dr. Sadaf and connect with her. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, and thank you. Thank you so much for your time and having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Essence of Health Tea Time Podcast. Click the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss a moment of the Essence of Health Tea Time podcast. Check out the show notes to obtain your free tips for healthy living guide to get you started on your health and wellness path. Follow me on social media at Essence of Health Wellness Clinic on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube and at dr.tw at eohwc on TikTok. Interested in becoming a member of the Essence of Health Coaching Program? Well, head on over to www.eohcoaching.com. The Essence of Health is in you.